Today, we do have Dr. Ogden uh, at the podium, and um, Sam is, uh, <clears throat> are you a native of Albany region? Native of, uh, of Albany, a graduated from Siena College in, and completed his medical degree at Albany Medical College before we were lucky enough to match with him in our residency here in 2015. He was a Gold Humanism uh, Honor member or recogni recognee, uh, which is not a surprise. Those of you who know him, which is virtually most, if not all of you, uh, would not be surprised about his approach to humanism in medicine and his clearly patient and family-centered approach that I think he's going to reflect upon today. Um, in his presentation. <clears throat> I also see a, a, a big a big outpouring of support from our friends at Alice Peck Day and the Mesmerpian Center, and that is a signal that Dr. Ogden will not be leaving the Upper Valley upon graduation. He will be joining uh, that group, and so we are excited both for Sam and for our friends at APD to continue the strong uh, connection here with us in pediatrics. So. Sam's been practicing. He's got all his setup ready to go. So you ready? Here you go. Good morning. Thank you, Keith. Appreciate the introduction. I have to start by telling you how my day began. Uh, so I was like, gray suit, brown suit, which one's it going to be? And I got some input from my wife last night saying, go ahead and do the brown suit. That's the better one, right? So the brown suit is special because it's from like wedding time, like nine years ago. So this morning I got up and I went to put it on. <laughs> I was like, really? I I knew residency was hard, but... <laughs> uh, and I knew graduation would bring new things, but it's bringing, it's bringing new things already. Um, so I've chosen to speak to you today about more than medicine, I'm pursuing the social history. I have no, no thing to report. Um, so the real goal today is to have each of us asking now, with each of our medical encounters, um, how can I integrate this child's social determinants of health into his or her medical care? I think each one of us is capable of doing this, and I think that each of us, outpatient or inpatient, has something unique to offer from their vantage point and from their medical knowledge base. So the plan for the day, um, I'm going to start by describing the importance of assessing and optimizing those social determinants. I'm going to examine the deep barriers that we continue to harbor uh, from a medical standpoint in assessing those, and then explore some next steps with potential next solutions along the way. I did promise my wife that I would have several awkward photos from my youth. Um, <laughs> promised, fulfilled. Um, so I have at least three reasons why this is important to me. One is from the past, one's from the present, and one's from the future. So in the past, um, in my early teens, I was diagnosed with a chronic illness that thankfully now I'm healthy from. Um, but I had five kids in my household. We had two high school educated parents who I think did very well with that, uh, one income, and a father who, looking back, I didn't know at the time, but worked multiple jobs to make sure I had access to medications, subspecialty visits, etc. Um, so I was sort of lucky in that department. Um, 
but looking back, I do wonder, um, I don't believe that was ever really assessed. I don't think it was integrated into the care. I don't remember anybody asking about the context in which my life and health were being lived out. Um, I have a reason to care about this in the present, and that has to do with just residency experience. So there's a persistent conviction um, when multiple um, examples of kids leave the hospital that there are some factors, um, disease or not disease, that are walking out the door with them that may contribute more than the things we've addressed when they're here. And then finally, in the future, we've heard about my direction in primary care. So I will start with full disclosure that I am still attempting to answer this question for myself about how I can best do this in the primary care setting. It's a big question and an important one. So I want to start with a tale of two Cindy's. The first one is the chart version. If you review her note to get to know her, you'll find that um, you can find all manner of things about her, the things she eats, even about her bowel movements. You can find about her favorite subjects. Very important to know whether recess or lunch are more important for her. Um, she brushes once a day, so we talk about that, and she gets her fluoride prescription. Uh, there's a concern for ADHD, but her Vanderbilt is negative. Um, the social history was updated. And on exam, she has dental caries and a laceration, actually, that I didn't put in there. And then she gets her immunizations and her uh, return in one year. So if you look at the social history updated tab, sometimes that will just be literally what the social history is. It was updated somewhere that you can't find. Uh, or it could be auto-populated with an up with a um, box that last date of update might be unknown. Um, and if it is uh, filled in, it may say something very helpful, like lives with mom and dad. <laughs> so perhaps that gives me information about the gender of the parents, perhaps, if we're lucky. Um, and if it's not up to date, it can be harmful, because she may live with only one parent by now. Um, so I'm going to start with some quotes that I have scattered throughout this talk, and I want to let you know that the quotes that are coming out of the CHAD General Academic Pediatrics Clinic um, are all the result of a subcomponent of research being done by ECO, one of our second-year medical students. Um, she's doing a project on provider and family perspectives on social determinants. So where that's relevant, I've pulled them in and put them on the slides here. So here's some examples of comments. We need to do a better job of consistently updating social history. Yes. Um, one offering was that we should be able to gray out the child's social history but not delete it. So that's analogous to the glass that we place certain kids' notes under when they are sensitive material. Um, and the problem here is persistent. It has to do with the fact that we need to have information in our electronic version of the medical record, that we need to respect privacy, um, and yet have a place to put sensitive information that's selectively viewable and that will persist over time and not just delete as we go on to our next notes and also not become a giant template that you have to read through either. Now, this is particularly challenging for our, our teens when they sort of graduate into the separation of viewables, if you will. So if we go back into the visit instead of the chart and meet the real Cindy, um, you, if you were the provider and telling the story, so she was your 1.30 afternoon patient. The family was late by 20 minutes, so you were nice enough to see her. Um, but during that 20 minutes, you reviewed the charts from the emergency room, and she had both a broken arm at one point and a facial laceration from a dog bite to face. Mom arrives very late, very disheveled. There are multiple children in this room. Mom 
promptly hands the phone to the one-year-old so that she can swipe her way through your visit and not interrupt. Um, because you don't have much time left, you have to ask about top concerns. Um, her concern is for ADHD and also how to keep the puppy away from the children. Um, so you go for the high-yield material first. You ask about sleep. Um, and the more you ask, the more you wish you didn't ask about sleep routine. And you find out how much melatonin she's on that might not even be safe. Um, you ask about her teachers and their perspectives. We're not sure because we have had so many teachers this year. We've moved twice already. The three-year-old mentions daddy didn't help us move this time. He's in jail. And mom gets pretty upset. So she roughly handles one of her kids in front of you. Awkward. <laughs> but she realizes it and she sits back down and apologizes and says, I'm sorry. This has been super stressful. I just lost my job. And just as you're about to say, your condolences, she says, nope, it's actually a better thing. My babysitter was using, and I didn't know that, and she died this weekend. That really happened to me in one of my well-child visits. So let's back up for a minute and talk about what are you feeling or thinking as the provider <laughs> in the room? And this is fair game, open field for forum, uh, just to get the quick reactions to the situation, to pool our collective consciousness or subconsciousness. Anyone? Overwhelmed? Overwhelmed? <laughs> you know? It was just it was just a matter of time. <laughs> so we have Dr. Sarmiento saying he's overwhelmed and the comment that I knew would come at some point from Shalene, she does critical care for this reason. All right, other thoughts, comments? Where is the social worker? Where is the so yeah, help, right? Okay. Distress, I heard too. Great. Okay. So this um, quote summarizes how I feel with this, that the attempts to address all the needs at once can be overwhelming for the clinician and the family. Second question for us is what would we do? Um, and overwhelming or not, the visit is over, your next patient is waiting. And so I don't mean in an ideal world, what would we love to have done? But what, what do we do? What would you do? What can you think to do? Get Maureen. Yeah. <laughs> okay. So I, f I figured there would be either silence or get help in that section. So this is generally reflective of the literature as well, that physicians recognize the influence of the social determinants, but we are unsure how to intervene. And what I think many of us might do is go on to the next patient and sort of hope that she's doing okay in between visits, maybe wish the world was different, things like that. So a word about the things we don't pay attention to. And this is not a political statement, although it could be, I suppose. So we don't necessarily document on things that we selectively ignore. And when things are not previously documented, we have a tendency of persistently ignoring them. So the question here is, did the visit do its job at searching for the intervenables for this child's life? If you look through the chart again, right, we have a nice long list and lots and lots and lots of X's. All areas were evaluated in accordance with Bright Futures guidelines. But you can't see it unless you were there, this social aspects that um, for Cindy sort of dominate her health and development in life. They're large, they dominate the room, and they're essentially absent in the chart, and they're absent in our list of interventions. These are the social history elephants. That's what I call them. So they're never too big to ignore. Um, they're large, but they're often silent. 
When left alone, they generally mind their own business, and thankfully for us, they sort of walk out the door with the patient not to return until the next well child check. So back to our uh, general PD clinic, we have a couple of quotes here that weren't attributed to specific folks. It's easy to let your biases direct questions. It's easy to approach the appointment with a predetermined formulation. And finally, when crunched for time, we make assumptions about families. So these are other things we do when we are under the gun. Look at that cute little dragon. So let's talk about why the, Cindy's social determinants matters to all of us in the community. So the issues look like elephants in the room, um, but they look a little different outside the office. And for a short while, they are existing outside of the child and not too long from now they start to manifest from within the child as things like sleep problems and behavior management problems and school problems all of which we might continue to manage strictly medically and at some point to the extent that we acknowledge these are from some of the social things many of us might end up feeling like we tried we gave it a best shot it's not necessarily in our realm it might not even be our job and or the ultimate, I can't fix this, maybe nobody can fix this. So the snag is that ultimately these become adult-sized problems. They become community-sized problems, state and nation-sized problems that are refractory to a lot of our interventions, even the very escalated kinds. I think a lot about the opioid epidemic, epidemic in this uh, way. So Cindy, who's silently suffering from her environment, who you would never, ever judge, she ultimately becomes the parent whose choices many of us will judge right away when she comes in, consciously or not. So when Cindy returns to your office as her mother, up against all the same barriers and with six more children for you to keep well, you might start to wonder how you're spending your time in the well-child visit. So these, these dragons I'm alluding to have a name. They're called social determinants, and they're defined by the World Health Organization as the conditions in which people are born, grow, work, live, and age, and the wider set of forces and systems shaping the conditions of daily life. What are they really? Uh, they are child maltreatment, social status, child care and education, finances, the physical environment, family social supports or lack, um, intimate partner violence, maternal depression and family uh, mental illness, household substance abuse, firearm exposure, and parental health literacy. There's a lot of aspects here, and again, it can be overwhelming. I promised myself I would stop after that particular slide and say that when I see that kind of slide at 8 in the morning, I feel like I want to go back home. <laughs> so I brought home here to make us happy again. <laughs> Um, that face on the left um, that Henry makes, he's our 22-month-old. There's a chicken and egg debate there about whether he did that first and now I do it or whether I... <laughs> and then Carly, uh, Bailey, my six-year-old, and Henry are all on the right. That mat is one of the best investments that was ever made, by the way. They now do Nastics. <laughs> So the social determinants literature and the adverse childhood experience research is now well established, so I'm not here to rehearse it all for you, but I do want to at least highlight it for the whole audience. So chronic stress is known to have physiologic impacts, especially over time. This happens in a dose-response manner where the more ACEs or adverse events you have, the more negative out outcomes you have. It's a gradient specifically, which is hard to prove um, in in any medical uh, condition evaluated. Um, so the socioeconomic status is inversely related to morbidity and death. And then to put it bluntly, basically, if you are poor and if you are less educated, you will have more exposure to risk factors, you'll have more health problems, and you'll likely die earlier. 
So the question, though, is, has this knowledge changed at all the way we practice or the way we spend that precious time we have in preventive medicine? This has already been alluded to by our crowd. I knew it would come up before I brought it up. So there's a subset of us willing to acknowledge the influence of these things, the fact that there is like social stuff going on here. And many of us will call for help, which is a great step and an important step. But many of us start and end there. And I'm here to talk about why we could be doing more. So back to our PD clinic. Sometimes I use care managers if they're around. They can be very helpful, but they're often unavailable. Um, and that's, that can be because they're busy also, right? And then on the other side of that, providers don't utilize me enough. Not all the kids who ought to be referred to me are. So there's a little bit of mismatch. And one word about this referral process, something that I've picked up on. Um, when we make any kind of referral or consultation in the hospital, there's sort of some unwritten rules and expectations about uh, what should be done previously. So you're supposed to call with a very well-described problem. You're supposed to have attempted some common first steps or interventions. You're supposed to have a clear clinical question. And you're supposed to stand ready to learn and change your practice as a result of the consult maybe even your consulting practices. Um, so we really need to treat social assessment and referral the same way. Um, so there are some very important personal, even if they're just selfish reasons why focus on good communication and, and relationship uh, can be helpful for the individual provider. So before you make the phone call, thinking about why you might want to spend that time yourself with the patient, these things have been correlated directly with increased discussion of the psychosocial issues, adherence, to plans, patient satisfaction, improved symptoms, management of chronic conditions, health outcomes, and finally a reduction in some things we really don't like to get wrong. So misdiagnoses, for example, um, failing to ask about intimate partner violence in the workup of pelvic pain, um, medical errors, inappropriate care plans, for example, prescribing a medicine that someone can't afford and won't pick up, and then malpractice claims. So these are reasons why, on the individual level, um, we really ought to be investing in our communication skills, just like research skills, physical exam skills, or presentation skills. So what can be done before, during, or after we call for help? The first thing you can do is simply ask, right, about their social history. And I want to highlight that this really is a privilege. How many other examples are there in a child's life where the parent is in front of someone expecting to be asked numerous questions by someone they assume to have the child's best interest in mind. So not exploiting this opportunity is really a huge loss for the child. Other things we can do is adjust our management, as I alluded to. We can provide specific advice, which requires us to ask specific questions. We can refer to our local support services, which presumes that we have a working knowledge of those. We can facilitate access to those services over time, and that requires follow-up. And then we can communicate. So um, some of our patients and families aren't um, taken seriously, aren't responded to in the way that they deserve, and sometimes having a letter um, from us can be very helpful in that regard. And then lastly, the advocacy level um, um, decisions and actions that can make healthy choices the natural ones. I knew there would be one typo in there, but I forgot. Man. And then finally, we can act as a reliable resource person throughout the process. So Cindy's red flags were obvious to you, right, in the office visit. Um, for many, they are not so, and yet they have the same impact 
to the child, whether you see them in the office or not. For this reason, we really ought to be screening. So this is a nice framework that was laid out by Chung et al. in a study that's, um, or not a study, but a um, review that's meant to provide guidance to primary care physicians. So this is what it's supposed to look like, surveillance and screening. And the difference is that screening is formal. Usually it uses um, validated tools. Usually it focuses in and out of high-risk situations depending on the population you're working with, whereas surveillance is you using your observation tools in the room or elsewhere to pick up on these things, which that happens everywhere, right? Screening is a little bit more primary care, but surveillance is everybody. That should ideally lead to a discussion. Um, and discussion is sort of the linchpin. That's the role that you and I can do better and that I'm speaking mostly about today. And the idea is that if you have the discussion, oops. Okay, crisis averted. Um, if you have the discussion, um, the goal, the end game really, is to explore the resourcefulness already existing in the family, to offer the resources of the community, to utilize referral the way we were talking about, and then ultimately to support the resilience of the child who's in front of you. A lot of us who come into pediatrics talk a lot about that word during our, um, and I think that we need to do our job to support it throughout time as well in children at home. So this is my favorite part of the talk. It's the hardest conversation to have, but this is about having difficult conversations, right? So what we really do when surveyed and when studied is that we avoid asking about social issues. We focus on the medical treatment and the lifestyle counseling exclusively. We recognize the distress and the emotions, those red flags that come up, but we feel constrained to practice the way we've been taught and keeping it in the medical realm. We also actively ignore and dismiss the majority of patients' hints and disclosures of emotional distress, and that's been shown in both adult and pediatric populations over multiple decades. Interestingly, providers are more negative, they disagree more, and they engage less in conversations with patients who rate their physical or mental health as poor. So to me, that suggests we don't like it when things aren't going well. And to the extent that we do like it when things aren't going well, it usually takes the form of an interesting medical situation that we try to figure out and that we end up having medication for, which is fun, I'll admit. The end result of this is that few child health clinicians routinely address the unmet social and psychosocial factors impacting children and their families. So I came across a few interesting studies um, in regard to trying to, to look at this a little further and classify why does this happen, how does this happen exactly. The first one was unfortunately in French, but it was alluded to by my second one, which is upcoming. Um, so Hajitsky et al. Um, basically took the form of interviews with multiple different providers, so physicians, nurses, social workers, other providers, and interviewed them around a touchy situation such as having to, to discuss with a family that there is an allegation of abuse. They pulled all those comments and then they subdivided them into the categories of um, the individual response coming out of the provider, basically. So it turns out that we have emotional responses during these encounters, that we use adaptive mechanisms for ourselves and that we operate on self-preservation like everyone else when push comes to shove, whether you're wearing a white coat or not. And they categorized these broadly into three, into three areas. So the first was reframing, which took the form of a complete doubt or denial of what you heard. Moving swiftly on. Simplistic solutions, which took the form of all-powerful recommendations. So like the one-liner cure. And then 
the last thing is silencing the problem by labeling it insoluble, and that's calling something refractory to my efforts. I can't fix that. So this was the more interesting study that came out of Hopkins, um, where Dr. Wisso uh, studied his poor continuity clinic residents <laughs> over two separate years, eight years apart, and recorded all of the responses that took place when a social or psychosocial prompt came out of the mom or the dad or the anyone. And um, they then categorized those using Hajiski's framework um, into their own categories that were very similar but slightly different. Here's what they found. A lot of residents ignore or drop. A lot of residents seem powerless. There's the acting omnipotent and then finally changing reality, which is my personal favorite. <laughs> So this is where I need some help from my friends. So Howell is a tired, distressed mother <laughs> whose, whose words are in orange. Sounds about right. <laughs> Sometimes, I <laughs> Sometimes I feel so useless. Like, you know, mm -hmm. I just let him cry. Um, so you guys don't have any concerns? <laughs> that is called ignoring or dropping. <laughs> you want to hand the mic down? One, oh well. Unfortunately, we have multiple examples. Hey, Christina, how are things going at home? Fine. I'm just having problems because I got a job offer. Oh, really? But I don't have anybody to leave the kids with. Oh, well, have you thought about a babysitter? <laughs> I tried everything. I even called the lady about foster care. Okay. Um, there's no daycare programs available? No. So what are you going to do about this job? If I stay at home with her like I've been doing, I've been so depressed. Hmm. Can you help me? Um. No? I'm not sure. Um, I can ask one of the social workers and see what they can do. So that's seeming powerless. Thank you, Preston. Um, you are also a mother in this situation. Good to know. So how's getting back into school? It's tough. It's a tough life. I don't get no rest. Yeah. Are you getting all your homework done? Oh, good. Good. All right. And then to dad, hey, what's the story with college? You got to get back. What's going on with that, huh? <laughs> Acting omnipotent. And then my last. I'm ready. Dr. Newt. Hey, what else is going on? You look upset. It's just a lot of things between me and my mom. You're doing great. I'm trying to. Well, look at her. She's healthy. She's happy. But my mom, she doesn't see it that way. It's like everything I tried to do, she's just trying to come down on me. Yeah. Do you realize, though, she does care a lot about you and the baby? <laughs> That's changing reality, which explains the awkward looks between me and Dr. Newton. Um, so this is the, the all-time low point of the research that I came across. The same study, the conclusions that were drawn, uh, found that um, the discouraging responses were not related to the doctor characteristics at all or to patient race, which is something they were particularly interested in. What drove it? 
Thank you. What drove it most powerfully as a group was the mother saying she had a problem. So we don't just fail to elicit, we actively suppress. The whole point is to screen for the dragons so that you can find them and help fight them. And what we might be doing instead is pushing them back into the cave with the children. Um, there's an interesting story that I wanted to also break off for a second and just tell you from my childhood. Um, so we were going to school in a big snowstorm, and my mom got us all into the giant 86 Chevy Suburban with the four-wheel drive and the big tires and the heavy weight. Um, and we made our trek to school. We crested the top of the hill, that hill that we all knew about every day, very steep. And not too long after she went over the top, we started to skid. And so she started to appropriately pump the brakes. And right about halfway down the hill, when we were gaining our momentum, she threw her hands off the wheel and said, I don't want to be here. I don't want to be here. <laughs> I really don't want to be here, Mom. <laughs> so the reason why I am here is because even though um, she felt completely powerless in the situation, she re-grabbed the wheel and attempted to regain control. Um, so I think our patients need the same thing from us, even if we're feeling right now like there's not a lot we can do in a certain realm for them. We have the evidence that these things matter, and we are building on the evidence about how we can um, intervene. One other feature here that I just want to mention, that doing otherwise than intervening, um, it's a particularly dangerous practice because when a patient takes a chance on you as their provider, that may be your opportunity to open or close a door that might not reopen with them. So this is the last slide I have that involves, um, well, actually, I can't say that. There is more participation. But this is the last uh, group pooling of thoughts and quick reactions. So now that we know sort of what we do, and it might strike a nerve with some of us, and I know it did for me too. I read the paper and I had a little bit of a moment. I'm having a moment now. There. Okay. Um, so what are our barriers? Time. Resources. Knowledge and emotional resilience. Okay. So I had to narrow this list down to from, from 11 down to 4. <laughs> I was highly encouraged to cut down. Um, so in my specific review of the literature, the most significant barriers to effective communication around this are here. Um, and they need little introduction based on what I'm hearing. And these are coming from various studies. So there's the time we have, lacking the right words. Yes, that is the Little Mermaid. Um, and then there's a the lack of preparation and training. And then a lack of resources, so just not knowing what are we going to do on the other end. So to start with time and to ask our PD providers in clinic, um, they've acknowledged we need time. Set aside the, in clinic to educate everyone about this topic. It's a part of so many conversations. And the second quote there, you may have read by now. So the truth is we need to have the time. And here are some just brief strategies on how we can. So using non-visit time for screening, that's we do that with so many other medical things. Um, it can be prior or it can be afterwards, but ideally it happens before so that you know what you're um, up against and what you can talk about in the visit. The completion and scoring of known tools can happen also not um, in the visit and not even by the provider particularly. Um, there's variability and flexibility here. You can use the tool that works well in your setting, and that's true outpatient and inpatient if you feel like you'd like to assess these things during opportune moments, wherever a child might be. 
So listening can actually save time. We talk, uh, there's that old uh, adage about you have to spend money to make money, and I think it's the same with, with time. You have to spend time to make time. Um, there was one interesting statistic I came across that if um, this came out of the interruption literature, if you will, how long doctors allow patients to talk before they cut them off and impose their own frameworks, um, that 80% of patients would divulge their entire story in under two minutes. You can get a lot of information from the patient's own telling of the story if you let them finish. Um, so choosing your words, we struggle to say less. I'm doing it now, but sort of appropriate, right? Um, but the chunk and check method is just give a little information in plain language, make sure they understood it, and move on. Use your team. So this is critical, right? We've alluded to that as a group. Um, but the team's resources and time and flexibility with time is greater than the individual's. And as far as, as far as using your own time, um, creating the follow-up visit that does not have to be associated with a medical diagnosis. And I would argue that even if we're really struggling to find the right time, it's better spent managing the elephants early on than the dragons later. So the second problem was of the right words. So uh, several folks in clinic, I lack the language, it's difficult to tease out challenges, I don't feel like we ask questions the right way, and then in the middle there, some staff have felt uncomfortable talking to the patients about why we're even asking about these things. And I can appreciate why that would be awkward if a patient says, why do you want to know if I fill in the blank? There's lots of things we could ask about. Just wanted to share a brief quote with you um, that I remember coming across back in the days when I read books for fun. Um, it's by Abraham Verghese in Cutting for Stone. Um, the physician main character, his father, says, tell us, please, what treatment in an emergency is administered by ear? And the correct answer is words of comfort. So don't underestimate the power of your words as therapeutic interventions, and to the extent that they open up bridges into the real information, they can be um, diagnostic as well. So we already discussed why this particular phone call here to social work or other friends are very necessary and helpful. Um, it also bears mentioning that even the most well-intentioned, willing, and able medical provider is not a social worker. I learned that one at home. Um, and I put up this slide again because in the communication section, although there are lots of good reasons to consult, not having the right words or not being willing to have a conversation is not a good reason for a consult. So thankfully, we do have some guidance from the AAP, um, who in um, this particular publication through the section on medical students, residents, and fellowship trainees has given us some of the words, the actual words that we can use if we're feeling a little bit less adventurous with our own words. And I've typed them out here so that you can see them a little better. Um, they will appear, I promise. Um, the lines that are written are to help us avoid judgment statements. And that, that might be why we're not saying them, right? So it's kind of hard to say. After this visit, I'm sort of left wondering, are you poor? <laughs> really hard, hard to say. And if we haven't been taught how to say it, it gets harder. So here's some examples. Do you have trouble making ends meet? Do you have a time when you don't have enough food? Is housing ever a problem for you? Do you have trouble paying your electric or heat? Is your child in any of these particular programs? Do you have questions about your immigration status? How happy are you with how you read? Implying that you might be able to help, right? And then have you ever taken out a restraining order? It's a high-yield, very specific question, right? And then do you feel safe in your home or neighborhood? 
Interestingly, that first one about making ends meet, that has been shown to be 98% sensitive and 64% specific for identifying patients living below the poverty line. That's quite efficient. One question. Great screener. So briefly, I just want to say that the right words are genuine in nature and that patients will know the difference if you don't um, contextualize them. So we know that compassion and empathy lead to patients being more forthcoming, more accurate diagnoses, and the therapeutic interventions that can affect them. And patients are more likely to disclose when directly questioned and when interest is shown in those aspects we were talking about, parenting and behavior, and when uh, attention is given while listening. So I also briefly wanted to mention, to the extent that we love protocols, there are examples of protocols on how to approach a, a difficult discussion. Unfortunately, most of them are about how to deliver bad news, which is an important skill. It's not one that a lot of us do every day, even those of us that are in high-risk settings. Um, but briefly, the spike protocol, for example, um, I'll just give you what it looks like delivering bad news and how you can use that in difficult social situations. So S stands for setting. Giving bad news means let's find a room so that we're not interrupted. But in the outpatient setting, it can be having your office become the place where the patient really has their home and they feel protected and having these discussions. P is perception. It's where are you at before I give you where I think you're at so that we can get on the same page. Um, and for giving bad news, that looks like what do you think you have right now before I tell you what you have. And then in the outpatient setting, that could be more like what is your assessment of your social resources? What is your history here? What is your um, association when I say social worker? That can be very important to know. Um, invitation is, I is invitation, and it's an opportunity to say, can I now share with you what I need to share with you? And on the outpatient setting, we could say, do you mind if we talk a little bit about X, Y, Z? Knowledge sharing, we don't generally have trouble with, generally. And E is emotions and empathy, so it's just reminding everyone that we should, when the patient starts to cry after the bad news, not just keep talking or use those other strategies that come out of us. We should actually acknowledge um, those emotions and use them as steps forward. And in the outpatient setting, that can simply look like acknowledging how hard it is to be in the situations I was describing earlier. Um, also, very briefly, because they're getting briefer, um, the right words might be more like the right messages. And this is acknowledged in um, a service in action brief that we recently got from the hospital, um, attempting to outline that if we all as a community just send the right messages consistently during a patient's encounter with us, it can completely change their experience of their care, which is very important. It has an increasing role in their evaluations of, and in our evaluations, physicians and hospital. And this is um, the JUST model is the name for this thing, and I've laid it out here. It seems rather simple as you read through it, so it's not as helpful to go through individually, but I just want to say that if you consider the pressures of your time and workload, it's easy to find examples where you are disregarding some of these things. So to rescue the situation, I want to go back to that same study that we did from before. There were not just discouraging responses. So there were residents who even with their workload and time constraints and far off personal resources were able to give encouraging responses. And here's what they looked like. Openly seeking help, building alliance through empathy, helping reduce crisis and drama, but without minimizing, 
bolstering credibility, meaning in the provider and the institution that's responding, uh, without the omnipotence factor, and then seeking additional information before providing advice. So we have three more slides like this. Is that mic still working, Amy? Thanks, Josiah. I've been frustrated because I've been having trouble with my mother. She just won't give me enough room to raise the baby the way I'd like. That sounds like a tough problem, but it's something I feel like I don't know a lot about. Nope. Don't is supposed to be in there. Uh, Mrs. X, our social worker, is really good with that sort of situation. Would you like to talk with her? So that's openly seeking help. And you can see there was not a, I'm not the right guy and there may not be a solution. Let me walk away. It was a, there are potential solutions and this sounds hard. Oh, there we go. Oh, well. You know, I've been thinking about going back to school to get my diploma. That sounds like a great idea whenever you're ready. Now that you're a mom, there are lots of options. If you need any help figuring that out, let me know. So bolstering the credibility without omnipotence. I can help even if I can't fix everything. And then the last one. There are times I feel so wiped out that I don't have energy for the baby. <laughs> That's probably true, right? <laughs> this is my life's <laughs> Counsel me. <laughs> that certainly happens a lot when kids are this age. But take a minute and walk me through your day. When does she sleep and what else do you have to do around the house, Amy? <laughs> Who's there to help you out? So taking the time to really figure out what the specific situation is before giving blanket advice. And then finally, the problem of preparedness. I'll be very brief with this one. So our CHAD providers have acknowledged we need trainings and recommendations around this. So let's go back to Cindy again one last time. This is our newly minted, you could call him an intern, you could call him a resident. He doesn't have a face, so we can't say. We're not being specific enough, right? So did we prepare him for Cindy's family for that? terribly hard visit. We started with a selection bias, right, preferring people who are really, really good with science, which is awesome for scientific medicine. Um, he went through his phase of solitary confinement, studying for his exams, and then he went through his phase where um, medical jargon was the only acceptable language around, and he's been, he's been good with that. But now he's in a room with a family from whom he could not be more further removed socially, financially, culturally, linguistically at this point. And the emotional supercharge is also a little bit shocking because he was just in continuity clinic. He was going to get a well child. So I think this sums it up nicely. Due to overwhelming involvement of post-grad trainees in delivering services, learning communication skills could be haphazard. So physicians perform between 160 to 300,000 interviews during their lifetime. That makes that the most commonly performed medical procedure that we do. If you consider further that psychosocial issues motivate 65% of the primary visits, and that 85% of mothers with young children would welcome or not mind at all being asked about these things, you make a good case for why we need some more training. If you compare that with another human service professional, like a master's of social work, you might find that they've experienced seven full courses just on how to talk to people and how the barriers can be um, gotten around. So physicians, although we feel um, rather prepared in other areas, we can often feel underprepared for this. I did come across one residency study where 91% survey said they gave a high or very high importance for understanding the psychosocial aspects, but only 53% felt rather or very confident in their skills. Let's pretend I wanted to teach myself 
how to talk to Cindy's family. I might approach this um, resource uh, shelf in the Gap Clinic, which actually is very helpful. Um, and I have used it before with great success. Um, but in this particular case, if you were to look for the section on difficult communication, you'll find that that um, skeleton in the middle is pointing to the section. I did not place it there. After I took the picture, I realized it was pointing right at the book. And it's a skeleton. It's bare bones. It was perfect. So the book, it's not a section, it's a book. And unfortunately, it's about how to deliver bad news. Again, end-of-life discussions are weighty and they're important for us to know how to manage. I would say, though, that so are all-of-life discussions, if you will. So just some ideas on how we can better prepare ourselves. Obviously, the longitudinal early education. So I had a great experience with this. Even in my undergrad, I had a lot of communication-specific courses that were designed knowing my future. Um, and then at Albany Medical College, um, they had an excellent patient clinical, uh, clinical competency center. And from the very first time that you showed up, um, that was a huge part of your evaluation, is whether you abandoned the patient or your communication during your workup. The second section might seem a little bit more relevant to us, so the mentorship piece, so modeling from um, the entire chain of command, if you will, while we're in-house and while we're learning how to talk to patients, having it as a specific targeted skill, and then having residents go ahead and practice, although we do this anyway. We communicate all day, every day, but we should be doing it intentionally, and then we should have good feedback about how we've done it. And then there's the role of simulation, which we do have a little bit in our Picky Sims, we often have a distressed parent that one unfortunate resident gets relegated to managing during the code. Oh, and then I don't want to skip that. The last thing is I just want to give a shout out to Bridges Out of Poverty, which is an excellent multiple day training that I've attended personally twice that can really help you explore what your barriers are and how they specifically come out of your history and how by the time that you're on the other side of the table, what new barriers are there as well? And how can we better understand folks who are in a cycle of generational poverty? How we talk to them, how we interact with them, which red flags we put up for the patient, not even knowing it because of their background. And then lastly, resources. So you need to know what the end game is if you're gonna be asking questions and getting positives on screeners or in your surveillance practices. So this, is our pediatric code card. So it's a way for a resident to respond to a life-threatening emergency, and we teach all of our residents you have to carry this at all times. A lot of us don't feel safe if we don't have it. And the reason why is because it helps walk us through. So the first step is acknowledging that you're in over your head when this happens. The second is having the courage to just name the situation, even if it doesn't have a great name at the moment. Acting quickly, organizing yourself and others, and then escalating the interventions until you've done everything that you and everyone around you can think to do. We rely on the card heavily because it anchors us, it reminds us of our first steps, and it gets everybody on the same page, literally. So this is our other Chad card, um, and it can be very helpful in another kind of crisis, if you will. It may not show up the same way, um, but this is the Family Resource Guard Guide put out by Molly's Place. Um, when you are in the room with Cindy, you might find that you need all the same skills. You have to have the courage to name this situation. You have to act quickly because next year is too long. Um, you have to organize yourself and your team. Um, you have to buy time to get the additional help you need and then escalate your interventions over time. So if you really want to be the most effective provider that you can be, you should have 
you should stand ready to attend to the whole patient at all times and right away. So I do carry them both in my pocket. The, see the chat card? Both of them are a little crinkled, so they live right there on the left. Um, and for the sake of time, I'm going to pass through this for a second and say that attending to the whole person is a conclusion that I came to in this particular way. So our goal in general is to optimize health. A lot of us are in this room because we find that the impact to be had for us is in youth because the rest of life remains on the other end of that. The majority of young people are medically well when we see them and the otherwise well child's future is built almost entirely on their social background. For outpatient providers, we're sort of ideally suited for this because we have multiple early visits. We're sort of expected to own the social history. Ideally, we have that relationship in which we can ask tough questions. And then briefly, just a quick word about the unwell child who's in the hospital. It, of course, takes the whole team. And even for someone whose social factors are sort of fine, coming into the hospital can completely throw off a lot of the social dynamic um, and the financial resources that, that uh, and social resources that a family has. Those who are in the cycle of poverty end up in the hospital more, and they may end up in the outpatient office a lot less for the same reason. So this is an opportunity for us to intervene. Psychosocial complexity seems to me to be directly complicating care in all settings. That could be a talk. Um, and in the hospital, we have the benefit of being with the patient the whole time, the whole time, the whole time. We can go back into the room and ask more questions. We can see how they're coping. We don't just have to ask. I'm going to skip that study for the sake of time. And then to the extent that we're all responsible, I just wanted to use the analogy of mandatory reporting. So that's a situation where we've been told that if you miss this, you're actually in trouble. But that's on the end of a spectrum whereby we should have been intervening all along the way. So in summary, this is the first time I've gotten this time frame. <laughs> if you are at all involved in providing health care for children, ignoring the social determinants will render your other efforts increasingly unproductive. There is and remains a giant gap between the power we know social determinants to have and our professional efforts to prevent and intervene. No one person can be expected to take down a child's dragons, but for that very same reason, we can't expect that one person to be the child. You can have an impact on the situation just by asking about the invisible, acknowledging what is visible, and pursuing. So whatever your role, remember that you have a unique insight into the family in front of you, and you also have a unique role with your particular medical background and your ability to tie the social into the medical things that you're seeing. And I want to almost end <laughs> with a case of a six-month-old who came in recently. We spent a whole noon conference on it. Um, came in with the chief complaint that was excessively fussy and an astute provider moved quickly in on the fact that it was mom's mental health that was really at stake. Um, and by directly asking, is your baby safe with you? Like tonight, she got a non-affirmative and that baby ended up with an alternative plan, a safer plan. And it took a lot. It took a lot of team members. It took a lot of time. It happened through a lot of different settings and a lot of different providers. So you don't have to complete the process to start it and to change the whole trajectory. So in summary, we all need to be familiar with the effects of poverty and the factors that impact health. But being familiar alone is not enough. So I want you to continue to think about how you can do that in your particular setting. Now, to end with some last minute background and fun stuff. Some of you might know that it's the, 
uh, I guess if you consider seven days, it's the opening week for MLB. There was a time in my life when I spent as much time thinking about this ball as I do now about medicines. Um, and looking back, I think the similarities were really striking between the job that I did on a mound and the job that I do now. Get into my outfit, go to my spot, assess one human being at a time the whole game long, and knowing that if I could understand the processes that work in that other person, I could take a more calculated approach in getting him to settle down. And it was a little tricky. I needed to treat him just enough like everybody else and just enough like his own person to get the pitch quite right. Some days I had to just throw whatever I had and be thankful that I had a competent team. And regardless of the unfolding events, remembering to lead by example and keep everyone's head up while under the microscope of the crowd. I think baseball was a really important piece for me. It gave me another community, another setting, another place to learn who I was and who I could be. And I wonder about what things we could be connecting children with that don't take a lot of time, but that could influence them greatly. It turns out, after all these years of, I shouldn't say that yet, I guess, after some years of medical training, um, it still comes down to some simple but trying realities, that it's not just about choosing the right pitch, it's all in the delivery, and that even when your delivery fails you, there can be rescue and restoration in relationship if you invest in it. Speaking of relationship, they say it takes a village to raise a child, and I don't know if there's like a word for what it takes to raise a resident. <laughs> but uh, whatever that word is, I want to thank you for being mine. And a special thanks to the folks who helped me with this particular talk and the trials they went through. <laughs> These are my references. Thank you guys. Thank you.